You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. All right. Well, got the game back together again. Uh, thank you all for coming, t- tuning in to another show with us uh, for the Spine Classic Citations with the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. So, hey, guys, let's introduce everybody. Everybody, hopefully you know me by now. I'm Jay. I'm one of the hosts uh, of the Nailed It Podcast. I also have two amazing uh, guys with me here. So, huh? Um, hey, everyone. How you doing? Um, I'm a PGY2 resident in Indiana. Um, excited to be on the podcast and uh, love the topic we're going to be talking about today. Uh, thanks to Jose uh, for, for the wonderful suggestion. My pleasure there. It's Jose here. I'm a, I'm a medical student at the American University of Integrated Science in Barbados. Looking forward to this exciting topic. Yeah, this is a good one. I feel like this is something that's uh, probably not uh, you know, a lot of people probably don't really get into it as much because it's so specialized that, you know, only certain people even seeing these types of pathology. So I'm glad that we taking the time to go into metastatic disease. Okay. As mentioned, uh, our topic on this is about metastatic uh, spine diseases. And basically, um, it's the most common kind of uh, cancer is in the spine. It can, in the the etiology of, uh, of this could be either be spread by hermaginous or lymphatic approaches. And usually that, and that usually depends on the, which kind of um, um, type of cancer there is there. Um, in addition to spread to the retivia, a lot of times these cancers will spread to, to other parts of the bones there, especially long bones there. And, um, and usually many times these, these um, spread to these bones can result in pathological or compression fractures. Even some, and basically the easy way to know is that um, sometimes even fractures occurs when uh, even doing simple movements, which we will find very odd to have a fracture, even simple movements, usually non-traumatic fractures, to be more specific there. And um, usually treatment is a multi-modal involved in many, many, many kinds like surgical, radiation, chemo, and later on in the presentation, we'll introduce um, some other kind of treatments available there that may be, that'd be a, quite an option depending on the nature of it. And um, in addition to other type, types of uh, most common origins of these cells called, could be usually uh, prostate, breast, colon, um, skin, in the case melanoma, renal cell carcinoma, lung, in a few other places, usually these are the common where basically um, spreads into the bone there. And also a special note you must take into consideration that that sometimes even even infections like osteomyelitis and tuberculosis can oftentimes mimic as a malignancy on imaging. And um, and that's why it's very important to um, to have a biopsy to it to as the gold standard to ensure that to rule out a malignancy. Once malignancy is ruled out, then you might then you can consider other etiology there. And basically, the one key thing want to mention is that a lot of times these these um, metastatic diseases are oftentimes find incidentally, which usually are oftentimes looked for something, but eventually upon imaging they they are picked up uh, incidentally. So and that's how they usually are found a lot of times there. Yeah, I think that um, those are all great points, Jose. And this reminds me of one of the previous Nailed It podcasts that I listened to uh, as a medical student. That was about working up osteolytic lesions. And what I remember from that podcast uh, was the differential in an adult patient with a, a newfound lytic lesion. Um, you know, it's metastatic disease, metastatic disease, metastatic disease, myeloma, lymphoma. So uh, metastatic disease uh, by and far makes up 
um, you know, the majority of lytic lesions we see in uh, both, you know, the axial and appendicular skeleton. So um, a pretty high yield topic. Um, go ahead and kick things off into our first paper. Um, so this is a landmark paper that is kind of the cornerstone on a lot of uh, what spine surgeons role is in managing metastatic disease. Um, this is a multi-institutional prospective randomized controlled trial uh, published in the Lancet in 2005 um, by Roy Patchell et al. out of Kentucky. Um, they were comparing surgery plus radiotherapy with radiotherapy alone for metastatic epidural spinal cord compression. Um, so a little bit of background on this topic. When this paper um, was, you know, put into motion, this was probably in, a, in the early 90s, uh, the, the standard of care for metastatic epidural spinal cord compression or metastatic disease of the spine was high dose, high dose steroids and, and radiation. Um, surgery had a very limited role. Uh, a lot of this had to do with the fact that in the past, all they were doing was just a posterior decompression with laminectomies, regardless of where the, the metastatic disease was located. Uh, so, you know, critiques of this were, you know, how are you judging the efficacy of surgery um, if all we're doing is laminectomy when a majority of the metastatic disease happens to be in the anterior, uh, you know, two thirds, the anterior two columns of the, uh, of the spinal cord or the, the spinal column. Um, so, you know, at that point, people started considering circumferential decompression. Um, and there were some retrospective studies that showed uh, promising results with, you know, wide decompression uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, so what, what Dr. Patchell wanted to look at with this study um, was, you know, determining a role of surgery uh, with a randomized controlled trial without any selection bias um, and, and establish the role of, of surgery in managing metastatic disease, essentially, in conjunction with, with radiotherapy. Um, so they enrolled about 120 patients from several centers between September of 92 and, 2000, and December of 2002. Um, a few of those patients were excluded for, for reasons, um, you know, that are highlighted in the, in the method section of the paper. Um, and they ended up with about 100 patients total. Um, and they randomized them to two groups um, and used an intention to treat analysis throughout the study. Uh, all patients got the same dose and timing of steroids and radiation, and the surgical patients were operated on within 24 hours of randomization. Um, these patients were followed up at regular intervals every four weeks until the end of the trial or death, uh, whichever occurred first. The primary endpoint of interest was the ability to ambulate. So they wanted to see how you know, these intervention influenced a patient's ability to ambulate. Um, and there were several secondary outcomes they looked at too, um, which are highlighted uh, in the PowerPoint. So interestingly enough, um, and you know, this is almost the first time I think I've ever encountered this in the results. Um, you know, they had such a significant difference in their results. The ambulatory rate in the surgery group was 84% uh, compared to 57% in the radiation alone group. Um, and, and the p-value is so, so low, it was 0.001. Um, that it met criteria to actually stop the trial early um, because of how superior surgical treatment was. It, it was deemed that it was unsafe to allow patients to have just radiation alone. So this was a huge turning point in the management of metastatic disease um, that, you know, they had to stop the trial because surgery was so much more successful. And you can see the Kaplan-Meier curves on the slideshow if you guys are, uh, you know, watching along, um, that the patients who underwent surgery had a significant longer period of remaining ambulatory and also remaining the patients who were ambulatory at the beginning remain ambulatory after treatment for a longer period of time. Um, so those are both significant results. And also all of the secondary outcomes were statistically significant, including ma maintenance of urinary continence, 
Asia Motor Score, uh, Frankel Scores, and Survival Time, which is, you know, pretty serious. Uh, and, you know, some people might say, well, you know, patients with surgery may have been in the hospital longer, um, but the surgery did not result in prolonged hospitalization either. So overall, um, statistically significant, um, you know, very important results early on in the study. Um, so the conclusion that they came to is that surgical treatment in conjunction with, with radiotherapy for metastatic epidural spinal uh, compression in appropriately selected patients resulted in the ability to lock for longer and regaining the ability to lock, walk more often, um, as well as increased survival time. Uh, so, you know, the, their final conclusion was that the best treatment for spinal cord compression caused by metastatic disease uh, is surgery initially followed by radiotherapy. But they did highlight that, you know, reasonable clinical judgment is necessary in the selection of patients. I mean, you know, there was a few of the, their exclusion criteria that they highlight um, that should be applied when, when considering surgery. Um, and, and we'll talk about some more papers here that uh, kind of help guide uh, patient selection. But I think the take-home point for this is in, in the appropriate patient, um, you know, surgery is a, a, plays a, a, a critical role in managing metastatic disease. Absolutely. And just like you highlighted, man, I think this paper was, like you say, is really key. Uh, one, two things, you know, we don't have a whole lot of randomized control uh, studies and uh in orthopedics so they they were already all on to something with that but like you say the the results were so uh you know so so positive towards one way that they decided to stop the entire study i mean that that lets you know how how good of a a treatment plan this is and i think that's why it's, it's likely has you know become one of the uh key uh operative treatment plans for these types of patients. So awesome. Our uh, neurosurgery colleagues did a great job on this one. Yes, sir. So we'll move it along to uh, another classic, um, you know, by Dr. Takahashi. Let Jose take it over. Thank you there, sir. Um, as, meant, as, sir as Dr. Patel mentioned, that um, presenting this next uh, paper on basically the outcomes and preemptive evaluation prognosis there. This was a preceptive um, study to evaluate um, outcomes and spinal metastasis using a specific kind of prognosis scoring system. And this was published by, um, by Dr. Tosky et al. That was on Spine 2008. It was completed at the Department of Neurosurgery at Naho University in, to in Tokyo, Japan. So well, since we're um, giving a little background here, we would um, we would see that um, there were in the previous uh, prior to the study because um, there were some limitations on the ability for how to uh, a, a kind of system in place for metastatic tumors because because um, because prior ones they really had any a good system uh, in place especially particularly with uh, with prognostic uh, figures there but uh, in however Taganowski here did did propose one back um, proposed a system in place since 1987 which he published a paper on it and which was validated since this was um and you can see from the table here shows you how the point system breakdown there and in the next um, slide we'll, we'll i'll show you i'll explain how this point system value is determined its prognosis there and so having that said there this study um, is attempted to, to determine determine the strategy for the metastasis as a base for prognostic scoring along with treatment there. So how how they determined such a study like this there? Well, what they did was is that um, 
they they didn't they take about 183 patients were selected for it, and they were all scored based upon the prognostic diagnosis as mentioned earlier. And you can see in Figure One there, it shows you the breakdown of the score there. Will gives you and below the score it gives you the predictive prognosis for each one of them. These on in each group there and the corresponding treatment options there. Like for example, if someone has like say a prognosis score let's say of ten, and knowing that his prognosis was less than six months, chances are he's going to scheduled surgery there, and as, and as such. And then in addition to it, um, for the each each one, so it will be divided into different groups, either conservative treatments or palliative surgery for those less than six months or in those multiple virtual metastasis, excisional surgeries for those who have one or more uh, year of prognosis for figures of six months or more you know, in the singular vertebra. And of course, these patients, the outcomes were scored based upon, based upon the vast pain, uh, Activities, day living indexes, and evaluate physical examination to to monitor pain relief and check on paralysis. So, in result, there it showed that um, that this system in place there that uh, Chernovsky had shows that 85 percent were were uh, predicted on um, the prognosis there. And in addition, they shown that of those um, in this. The survival period for, for each one shows that 871% has a score of between zero to, to eight in six months there. For those with a six months or, or more prognosis, where 87% scored between nine to 10. And then for the one year, it was around 95% there with a total of between 12 to 15. So it kind of shows that it has some good outcome in this in terms of not just for the for the system for place for just for the prognosis, but also corresponding treatment there. And um, as such, the prognosis criteria and survival period was more than 87% there. And of course, that uh, when monitoring the examination for, uh, for paralysis and even pain relief there, paralysis was shown that it was about, it was about 76.9% in the incisional group and 81.1% in the palliative um, group, and then 61.1% in the conservative group. And then uh, there was no, they showed that there was no um, no issue, no um, corresponding in terms of pain relief there, as as it as shows that um, it was monetary very um, strictly there because of the certain modalities involved there. So there, so in conclusion there, and so I, oh, before I do that, let me show you some of the graphs here. Basically, it shows you it shows you that the how monitor goes there with the visual groups where it shows that how um shows the improvements of these scores based upon the the treatments they're involved. So it has done this. So in conclusion, there this has shown a, um, very effectively how determined for the system in place for using life expectancy as well as when correspond to the correct treatment uh, methods. Of course, the author make a note, he made a note here saying that, that some revision could, uh, might be necessary for improvement of these evaluations and based upon new treatment modalities and various, because if you notice from, from, um, from some of these um, treatment options that other, that other um, didn't have really much of other uh, adjacent um, treatments, particularly like say uh, radiation chemo, for example, there. So, but it has expanded more, so 
thus that does recommend for um for change any revisions and evaluation. However, we we could say from based on this study and the results shown that this is very this is very appropriate as well as also a a, a first prior given um system in place for those predicting prognosis as well as giving advantages and limitation of these treatment options there. Nice. Yeah, man. I think that um, you know this this study has. The, the two goals of, of me choosing the study, one was to introduce the, the Takahashi scoring system. So um, in 1989 and, and then again in 2005, I'm going to jump back a few slides just to the scoring system slide, just so just to emphasize this. This is what he came up with first um, was evaluating the prognosis. So based on these factors, um, which are highlighted in the table, they, they, they predicted how long somebody with metastatic disease to the spine would live. So they had that figured out. But the question was is, okay, so now that we know how long these people are going to live, how do we know our treatment op or what to do in terms of treatment? Like who do we operate on? Who do we not operate on essentially? Um, so that was the purpose of, of this, you know, updated paper in, in 2009 was um, now that they had the scoring system, they wanted to use their scoring system to stratify treatment. So um, that was essentially what they showed was that, you know, their scoring system would you know, serves as a good guidance to provide, um, you know, treatment options for patients with metastatic disease. So I think that, you know, their, you know, primary take-home point is one, knowing the Takahashi scoring system and what it means, and then, um, you know, its implications for treatment as well. Yeah, I agree. I, a lot of the papers that you see with, you know, there's a different, a couple of different uh, scoring systems. We're actually going to talk about another one, I believe, in one of our papers, but, uh, you know, as far as the treatment, it, it all based is a lot of it has to go back to, you know, prognosis of that patient. Um, and I haven't, I don't personally have a lot of experience with uh, oncologic spine patients, but uh, seeing in these papers that how important the prognosis is, and it's not just about, you know, the symptoms that they're having, but what is the overall expectancy of these uh, patients in the long term, even with the given treatments that's available. So, Really did like this paper just because it, it highlighted that that whole portion of, of the uh, algorithm when you're thinking about how to treat these patients. For sure. Um, now we'll jump over to a realm of unfamiliarity for all of us. So the, for the next next uh, paper here, it, it it's basically on a very unique approach to it. So although this is a very common area found in neurosurgery there, but this shows how it's used in the area of um, in spine surgery for um, use of radio surgery. And basically how this approach was is basically a uh, proceptive non-randomized longitudinal cohort study to evaluate clinical outcomes of, of using fractional radio surgery and as for, for the uh, metastatic spine tumors. This was written by, this was by Ginston and all, published in Spine 2006. 2006. And the study was done in the Department of Neurosurgery and Radiation Oncology at, U at the UPMC in Pittsburgh. Okay, just to give you a little background about it, because uh, as mentioned earlier, this is this area is more more um, aligned to something you see in neurosurgery because they have used there has been great amount of uh, research of this this on about it, but but there has been some few uh, in the areas of in orthopedic spine of how this works out here, basically. A little bit of background on this kind of this uh, option is is basically it will give you a, a high dose radiation delivering a single fraction to an to areas around the around usually around the 
crane, the brain area in this case, or in the spine area. And it's very effective in controlling uh, malignancies around the brain there. So this has been shown that in terms of the brain metastasis and even radiation there has been, had a control rate in between 85 to 95% there. And one note I want to bring out here is that this kind of option treatment is very well, particularly in areas where if the, if the tumor is reaching the areas that are very, very difficult to enter through regular uh, excisional surgery, like, for example, maybe it's deep, real deep into the parenchyma of the brain that may affect um, surrounding delicate structures like maybe the brain stem or even sometimes the vasculature or even the nerves, the nerves around it. So, so not taking any chances since it, the risk is greater than the benefit. So they, this is an option they will do in order to, um, to um, as a way to, an option to help out this um, this, this problem. And what they usually do is, is that it gives a good tolerance. This kind of uh, option radiation dose around the tumor is, is very low tolerance to, to, of the spinal cord to the radiation, particularly without causing any kind of, of myelopathy towards the spinal cord. That's the benefit of the fractional over the ear fractional because the ear fractional gives a higher dose there and it can cause, it has no one can cause issues with the spinal cord there. And then um, patients with high complaints are usually debilitated and high risk for surgical mobility, as I mentioned earlier. Usually uh, with li limited life expectancies and underlying diseases, as well as high surgical complication rates with subscreens or decrease in quality of life are most unacceptable. So basically, as mentioned earlier, that mentioned earlier that if it cannot be reached with normal surgery, then this is an option due. And then real quickly here, this picture here, this slide here shows demonstrating some options here of rheostat turn. On the left side of your screen there shows a rheostat surgery or gamma knife as commonly called. You may have heard about it. We basically just zoom, just uh, show beams of radiation through the area. And the cyber knife does very similar to it. Except the only difference between the two here is that gamma knife zapped in one particular area um, different certain angles around the area. Because a lot of times these, these gamma knives, they're usually placed in this machine, as you can see in the picture, with, with a brace or some kind of a mash, mask over the head to protect from the radiation. Whereas cyber knife you see here can go all around the head, around the head without, without uh, worry about, because it's, a, it's almost very similar to like say a proton therapy for certain uh, cancers there. Very similar to go all, all around Without worrying about, without worrying about that, with very and the amount is very little, so not worry about any complications compared to the gamma knife there. So, what? So the method with what they did was they did a cohort 500 cases of um that underwent radio uh, radio surgery there, and of course they used uh, to make the proper diagnosis. They used proper either CT or MRI to make the diagnosis, and for for the Cyber knife we use this which consists of three things. They just use the CT imaging with bone with the landmarks and um, other bony uh, prominence there, as well as the planning and the treatment itself there. And they also and they also they had documentation to, to monitor um, pain management because of the in order to uh, very monitor of these uh, these pain meds because of high anesthetic uses there. And the next, this slide right here will show you just the image will look like when this, when using the cyber knife, the cyber knife here, it shows basically in, in figure one, you see how it ranges around to basically a computing process, kind of like very similar to as if you're doing like a robotic surgery for like joints or, 
or spine, for example, very similar approach. It basically gives you a planning approach and it's also surround, it gives you a, um, an idea where to, where to, to hit in a particular area, in areas of uh, focus, focus there. Now in the bottom screen here, in the bar portion there, I, what I am, in the bottom picture here, I play, I, I, um, when I was looking through more about this, about this information, I come across a paper written by Cox and all in 2012. Dr. Cox was a, um, a radiation oncologist from Memorial School, School and um, Kettering Cancer Center in New York. He was he published a paper where he talked about using gamma for spinal um, metastasis. And he and this picture here from the article shows you the approaches how he did it in different angles and different stations for each level of the spine, like the cervix, the thoracic lumbar area. Just to give you an, just a quick idea on that. And the results shows that the risk that the radio surgery was very effective in decreasing pain in, in these kind of patient populations, as, men, as I mentioned, because they're very difficult because of the nature of it and their delicacy. And it showed the improvement, the pain improved at 86% improvement. And, and as well as also, and also demonstrate 96% of women with breast cancer, 96% with melanoma. 94% cases with renal cell carcinoma and 90% lung cancer cases. Overall, in um, overall long-term tumor control is found to be at 88% for all cases there. So this is what I was mentioned earlier about. This is um, an op a great option for those if it cannot be surgically resected or whatever, if it can be done here. So this is one great option for as a treatment option for in place for say for example the for surgery or radiation chemo. So this is something to consider in, in there, in, the, in this particular area. So the conclusion was shows that the single fraction um, radio surgery is both safe and clinically effective, as we mentioned in the, in the, re, in the data, in the results there. The major potential uh, ablation benefit for this is that it has very short time, usually in a, usually a day or usually a day, usually in some cases, and it could be done in outpatient settings and potentially better local control of tumor and minimize risk, risking on side effects. And even in some places, they, do, they offer this service. A lot of times they could be classified as outpatient services a lot of times. So this is something very, very, um, something great there to have there. In addition, it allows the treatment lesion previously you know, irradiated using conventional external beam radiation, irradiation. As I mentioned earlier about because because since it's a very low quantity of our radiation compared to um, standard radiation or even um, other even other treatments, this is something that could be very much safer and as well as also a more effective way to reach without even uh, worry the fear of may causing further uh, serious complications in the near future. Yeah, nice. I think that you know this was something I didn't I didn't know much anything about at all. Um, like, as you mentioned, it's primarily neurosurgeons and radiation oncologists that use this. Um, but it's part of the multimodal treatment of these patients. And as we'll jump into on the next paper, um, you know, this, it, it takes a village, right? You know, it's, it's complicated. Cancer is a complicated disease process. We need to work together with our radiation colleagues or medical colleagues and, um, you know, and, and take the best care we can of these patients. So I thought it was interesting just to shed some light on a aspect of this that I'm not so familiar with. Yeah. And I actually did see a question about this before on a ortho bullet. So it does something, it is something that comes up and definitely can be, I think like both, 
Well, definitely, Jose. I know Jose mentioned it, uh, you know, can definitely be a good option for individuals who may not be healthy enough to go undergo, you know, some kind of major debulking kind of surgery or removal of some kind of tumor. And also, uh, you know, maybe if the, the actual tumor itself is very radio sensitive, that this may be an excellent option as well. So, uh, definitely seems this is definitely worth reading. I appreciate that we, we brought this up today. Yeah. And I mean, and, and another thing that too, is a lot of the patients that have metastatic disease, like a lot of these things that we talked about, like the patchel paper and Takahashi, they're, they're not doing surgery on people that have, you know, massive widespread metastatic disease. You, you can't provide, you know, tumor control, you know, debulking or, or you can't deburden the tumor, you know, if it's everywhere all over the spine. So that's where this, you know, these type of different multimodal um, treatment options are also, I think, high yield, you know, people that aren't great candidates for resection, like, like you mentioned. All right. So jumping in the last one, while we're on the topic of, of multimodal approaches, um, this is a, this is called the NOMS framework. Um, so this is a group out of the Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center in New York that did a literature review on uh, implementing a systematic treatment of metastatic spinal disease um, with what they call the NOMS approach, which is an acronym um, that stands for neurologic, oncologic, mechanical, and systemic. Um, this was published in The Oncologist in 2013 um, with the senior author, uh, Dr. Lawfer. Um, and this is, again, the Department of Neurosurgery. So um, learning a lot from the neurosurgery colleagues today. So a little bit of background and kind of just touching base on, on why we, uh, you know, chose this paper. Um, the goal of, of this, the group of these authors was to provide a, a dynamic framework, you know, in a field that's constantly evolving um, to treat spinal metastasis. So, you know, they wanted to see how we can combine medical optimization, uh, chemotherapy, radiation, um, surgery with host characteristics of the patient to come up with the best treatment plan. Um, so th they wanted to incorporate all the technological advances and, and multimodal options. Um, and they developed the four components, like we said, the acronym neurologic, oncologic, mechanical, and systemic. So they determined the different ways to assess each of these things. Uh, the, neurologic, the neurologic assessment um, was based off of two things, radiographic assessment on the epidural spinal cord compression and clinical assessment if a patient was myelopathic or not. So you know, the paper highlights how they specifically grade their degree of epidural spinal cord compression. I'm not going to go into that, um, but it's just a scoring system essentially, which is invalidated. Um, and then the myelopathy was a clinical diagnosis. Um, the oncology component was, you know, the expected response of the tumor to available treatments like external beam radiation, um, stereotactic surgery, chemotherapy, immunotherapy. Um, but the primary focus that they wanted to hammer in was the radio sensitivity of the tumor. And uh, a little knowledge bomb they dropped that I thought was interesting was that, um, you know, that what correlates the most with the radio sensitivity is the, the histology of the tumor. So we often forget about the, the pathologists of the world, but um, you know, they're, they're doing their job and their multimodal approach for, for us here in, in the uh, spinal metastatic disease world. Um, and then the, the mechanical component uh, was basically determined by stability using the spinal instability neoplastic score uh, known as the SIN score. Um, I've included a picture, but essentially this, this incorporates the location of the tumor, patient's pain levels, the type of lesion, um, you know, alignment, vertebral body collapse, things like that to come up with a number I mean, basically what you get is unstable, stable, or indeterminate. So that's your mechanical component. Um, and then the systemic component is the patient's host, you know, innate um, medical comorbidities, 
uh, and their ability to survive and expected survival, um, you know, which includes different prognostic scoring systems. Uh, uh, doesn't include the Takahashi, but that would be an example of, of a similar type of scoring system that would provide that type of information. Um, so essentially what they came up with, uh, this chart is kind of just a, a summary on, on how they approach this. So, you know, you can see the four columns, neurologic, oncologic, mechanical, and systemic, and then their decision. So uh, they look at the neurologic components, whether it's a low or high grade compression, whether or not the patient is monopathic, uh, the radio sensitivity or radio resistance of the tumor, and then the stability determined by the SINS score. Um, and then lastly, the systemic uh, host characteristics of the patient, and then that guides their decision-making, um, whether they think they're a candidate for radiation plus surgery, surgery, um, you know, alone, stabilization, et cetera. So th they came up with a nice algorithmic approach. Um, and, and in orthopedics, we do like algorithms. So I thought this was an interesting, um, interesting thing to include. So essentially the conclusion, you know, this isn't, um, you know, super groundbreaking, but it's, you know, they, they provided a framework for, for people that see spinal uh, metastatic disease to optimize patient care um, that involves, you know, a multimodal approach, um, multi, multi or I guess interdisciplinary approach is probably the appropriate term. Um, and, you know, they wanted to emphasize tumor control and minimize uh, morbidity from treatment, um, but also be as effective as possible using uh, pharmacology, radiation, and surgery. Um, so it's important to consider the stability, the degree of epidural tumor extension, um, and then, you know, the, the histopathology, which uh, relates to the radiosensitivity, um, and then the patient's medical comorbidities itself in, in determining how to treat their metastatic disease. So um, I think this is a, a, a good read um, just to kind of open your eyes on, on interdisciplinary approaches to treating um, patients. Yep. And I don't have a whole lot to add, but I did like the, uh, the diagram there, you know, us orthopedics, we, uh, we, we like, we like diagrams and pictures. So I actually did think that if you kind of go through it, it kind of sums everything up and makes it pretty, uh, pretty simple to follow. So, uh, just like you said, I kind of like the, the multi, uh, you know, uh, the multi approach that we're kind of taking with this kind of taking into effect. Um, all the different uh, various factors that come into play. And um, overall, I, I enjoyed all these papers, guys. I think these papers were, were awesome. Um, you know, I learned a lot. I um, think there's a lot of highlight on, and I'll see if you guys agree, but uh sounds like, you know, um, spinal cord compression, uh, pain, and instability. Along with prognosis, of course, seems to be some of the high, the hierarchical things to keep in keep in mind when you're treating these patients. Yeah, I think um, you know it's nice to read some neurosurgery literature and, and learn you know it, you know it's a joint it's a joint effort to take care of spine patients. So it's a little you know I think that orthopedic literature I, I mean this may or may not be accurate you know but based on what I've seen in residency um, we have a pretty structured approach to reading papers. We have pretty frequent journal clubs and, um, you know, very regimented uh, curriculums in our residency with things like orthobullets and stuff. And I'm not, um, at least based on talking to my buddies who are neurosurgery residents, I'm not sure, you know, they, they take the same uh, academic approach, you know, obviously their residency is academic, but they don't have such as, uh, you know, structured things like orthobullets. So, um, you know, they have their journal clubs. That's how I got some of these ideas from was actually, they suggested 
know, they have pretty infrequent journal clubs, but they touch over these big landmark papers. Um, and so that's kind of how I came in nice. contact with some of their literature, I think. Oh, man, I think you did a great job. Always good to kind of get different points of view of things for sure. Matter of fact, I probably should start trying to find uh, find someone to let me into one of their journal clubs whenever they do it. Because that would, I mean, there's a, so much uh, overlap between ortho and neuro, neurosurgery. You know, of course, there, there are some things that they do that we just don't touch. And, you know, they may have a little bit of a different opinion on certain things, but it's just good to hear the other side. And, um, you know, for people who are are interested in spine, and if you go into a fellowship, maybe that's something you look for is where, you know, maybe it's a combined or joint type of fellowship between orthopedics and neurosurgery. Or at least you guys, you know, work together a lot so that you can kind of get two different sides of view on things for sure. Indeed. And sometimes in some uh, fellowship programs, depending where you go to, oftentimes they have faculty that are both ortho and neuro sometimes. So you're looking into basically one side, um, looking different approaches and parameters and so forth there. You know, they're very similar, as mentioned, but of course, the approaches a lot of times are quite differently. Because I myself there that I did two rotations in spine, one with an orthopedic and one neural. They're very similar in very pathologies and so forth, and even surgical devices and so forth. But obviously, there's quite obvious differences in, the pro- in how their approaches and their management as well. But generally speaking, overall, we all, they're all taught the same there. Awesome points. Awesome points. Well, guys, I, I guess we can wrap it up. Again, I thank everybody for listening in with us. If this was your first time tuning in, we have more to come. These guys are putting out great material pretty often now. And we also have a, a slew of other uh, groups that's putting out different papers on different uh, specialties as well. So keep an eye on that. Uh, we still have the podcast going. Just uh, make sure to subscribe. Subscribe on any uh, provider you have for your, your podcast as well as YouTube. And we hope to see you back next time.